Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We ask that your spirit will be here, that our hearts will be drawn together in unity and love, and that any misconceptions we hold about you that will be clarified in the truth will, will set our minds free. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly worship, and the lesson title is Happy Are You, O Israel. And the memory verse this week, somebody read the memory verse, Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21. Somebody read that for us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And what do you think this is referring to? What do you think would be the most egregious example of calling evil good and good evil? Blaming God for bad. Making God out to look like Satan. Wouldn't you say that's the most egregious example? Exactly. Yeah, let's watch for that and see if, uh, if any of that is a problem for us this week as we go through the lesson. <laughs> um, Sunday's lesson, last paragraph, it says, the tabernacle had been dedicated and the priest consecrated uh, to the service of the divine worship. Holy fire appeared as a token that the sacrifice had been accepted. The people responded in unison with a shout of praise, and they fell on their face in humility before the glory of, of God's holy presence. What we see here is intense reverence, awe, and obedience. Every detail of God's commands were followed, and the Lord showed his acceptance of what they had done. And right below in the green section, notice their reaction. They shouted and also fell on their faces. However intense the whole service was, the reaction was one of reverence, joy, and fear all at the same time. How can we learn to manifest this kind of reverence and joy in our own worship services? What are your thoughts about that? I, I think they read a lot between the lines. My first question was, do you think God was happy with this situation and what was happening back then? Was God saying, yes, this is my ideal? This is my, what I'm looking for. This is the kind of relationship I want with my children. He says he, he's not, uh, at one point he said, I'm not pleased with all your sacrifices. And I think that meant even from the very beginning. It didn't please him to see them have to kill a lamb or, or a bullock or whatever. But um, the fact that they obeyed, he, he appreciated, but the fact that they had to kill a lamb was not his first intention of how they should worship. In Micah, in Amos, he says the same thing. So, do you think God enjoys it when we fall on our faces cowering in fear before him? No. Parents, would you like your children to relate to you this way? You know, Paul in the New Testament refers to God as what? What's the term he uses? They translate it as Abba. What's it mean? It doesn't mean father. Daddy. It means daddy. Do you think God wants us to relate to him like a child does to their daddy? Or their mommy? Depends on who their daddy is. Okay, but a loving daddy. Yeah, a loving daddy. Good point. Um, when we look at the inspired record, what do we find uh, in relation to how people are interacting with God? I remember Moses talks to God down on his face, cowering. Is that right? No. no. Moses talks to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Wait a minute. Moses was not being reverent. He was not a proper in the church. He should have fallen on his face, like the quarterly suggests. How about Abraham? How did Abraham speak to God? Face to face. These are the only two people in the Bible that the Lord called his friends. Enoch walked and talked with God. Enoch walked and talked with God. Yes, I would, I would give him friendship there as well. Yeah, but he, we don't find him falling down on his face when God approaches, do we? In fear. How about in Eden before sin? God would come in the cool of the day, every day. Do you think Adam and Eve were reverent and had a right attitude towards God before their sin? And do we find them falling on their face in fear? No. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Uh, get this. Fear is part of the infection of sin. 
And the grossest manifestation of that infection is being afraid of God. Yes. When I read this, I read it, I see it of children of Israel who have come out of a kingdom for 120 years who felt when they went before the king, they fell on their faces. That was the custom. They did it to close friends and things like this. That was a custom. They had brought all their jewels. They had spent all this time working on it. And they were giving their custom of honor. I can't see in here at all. I mean, I know I'm not going to fall down because I, we don't do that here. So I, to me, to try to take the children of Israel at that point and say this is what we should or should not do today is... This is Exodus chapter 20. Because you're suggesting they actually didn't have fear, dread, terror, no, apprehension. I heard you suggesting this was just cultural respect. Well, and but they did fear, and so they're, they're, they've got a whole long way to go. They they are coming, and so they they are fearing God oh. in a, in a way. But they have lived in fear for a hundred. Yes, they have. Okay, all right. So we're on the same page. We're on the same page here. So you agree that they had fear and terror and dread of God? Well, no, I don't. I don't hear the dread. I don't hear that. Okay. Fear. All right. Exodus twenty. <laughs> Exodus twenty. Starting in verse 18, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. Trembled with fear. They stayed at distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Does this sound like they want a close relationship with God? Does it sound like they have confidence and trust in God? If they spoke face to face with their master for 120 years, they were still under this fear. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing that. That's what I'm saying. They had fear and anxiety and dread, and this is how they responded. And should we use the infection of fear, the fear response that man has towards God, since sin, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Who were they running from? Who were they hiding from? Who were they afraid of? Should, should we use this infection, human fear response of God that has happened since sin as our ideal, put it out as forward and say, hey, we should fear God, we should be afraid of Him, we should fall down on our faces in terror. Wendell. It does say in Hebrews that even Moses um, trembled and was afraid at that same time. I think that was at the burning bush. In Hebrews it talks about the mountain, fire, and that Moses trembled and was afraid. And so we got Paul's description how many years later, and we have Moses' testimony in Exodus chapter 20, where Moses says there's no need to be afraid. So Moses says there's no need to be afraid, and Paul saying years later Moses was afraid. Yes? We need to ask why they were afraid. Why were the children of Israel afraid? Well, yeah, yes, well, well, I think that's a great question, because I was going to come down, uh, I'm pressing this point, but we also have other references we're going to bring in. Revelation chapter, um, oh, I can't remember the chapter. Revelation where the 24 elders fall on their face before the Lamb in the vision in heaven. Actually, I think I have it here. Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10. And uh, it says the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell on their face before the Lamb. And then we have um, Daniel chapter 7, though, which is also a picture of heaven where the Ancient of Days takes his throne and millions of beings stand before the Lord and don't fall on their face before the Lord. Right? 10,000 times 10,000 stood before the Lord. Um, we have the prophets, Isaiah chapter 6, 5 through 7. Woe to me! I, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and live a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The one, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand and had taken it with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips, the guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And then we have Isaiah. That was Isaiah's example. Here's another example out of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, 10 through 12. A hand touched me and set, set me trembling on my hands and knees. This hand was the hand of an angel. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up. Notice, the hand touched him. He sets on his hands and knees trembling. But the instruction of the angel is, stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before God, your words were heard. So here we have these men of God, Moses, 
trembled. Daniel trembled. Isaiah trembled. But what's the instruction from the, from the heavenly witness? Wasn't it the, the uh, shepherds out in the night? That happens over and over. Yeah. So again, the reaction of humans to a divine presence is what? Fear. But what's the instruction from the divine representative? Fear not. So I'm suggesting to you this fear reaction is part of the infection that sinful beings have, not what God designs and wants for his people with him. That's my suggestion. Do you think that, that there's any merit in that? Yes. There's a good example of somebody falling on their knees, and that's a groom, and he falls on his knees with fear and trembling to ask his bride to be his wife. And that's an example of love. It's like... No, that's an, exa- that's an example of self-doubt and insecurity and whether she's really going to say yes or not. Because I can tell you, when I asked my wife to marry me, there was no fear and trembling. Well, I think it's because he loves her so much that he couldn't live without her in his heart, you know, and so he doesn't want... I mean, it's kind of the same thing. You love God so much that you come to Him in fear and trembling only because you love Him so much. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think our human hearts and our human relationships, even in our human love relationships, are still infected with fear. And if we're proposing to someone we have a lot of anxiety and fear, I would question the proposal. Because perfect love casts out all Fear. So what is it that God wants to do in our hearts? If he has his will, if he has his way, what will he do in our hearts? Will he produce perfect love there? Yes. And if he produces perfect love, what will happen to fear? Now, neurobiologically, we can actually document this. We experience altruistic love in, in a certain part of the brain called the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex. And when it's active and firing, it turns off the fear circuitry of the brain so that the amygdala calms and we don't fear, feel anxiety and fear. Love actually suppresses fear in our neurobiology. So I think that is God's design that fear is part of the infection of a broken trust relation with God, believing lies about him, being severed from our unity with him, and as we come back to know him, fear is taken away. Has fear always meant uh, anxiety and distrust and afraid? Well, fear in the English language can also mean, it can be used to mean awe, reverence, admiration. And in that sense, that, that will always be there. The, the closer we come, we'll have more admiration, more adoration, more awe. But as a child with a parent, a true, healthy parent-child relationship, is the child actually terrified or afraid of the parent? Or is there absolute confidence and trust there? If it's a healthy love relationship. There's not terror and fear, is there? No. So I think God is calling us back to a real trust relationship where we admire and awe and respect and love and adore and trust Him, but we're not afraid of Him because we know He so loved us, He sent His Son. We know that He is on our side to heal, restore, and regenerate. We know He is always for us and never against us. But our fear and insecurity makes us doubt Him. So Monday's lesson, let's jump to Monday's lesson. The lesson recounts how fire came out from the Lord and consumed the, the sacrifice dedicate, at the dedication of the sanctuary, and then how Nadab and Abihu took unauthorized fire in before the Lord, and fire came out and consumed them. Then the lesson states, It's hard to believe that after something so dramatic, a terrible fall would immediately follow. One would have thought that with such a demonstration of God's power, all the people, particularly the priests, especially priests as highly honored as these, would have fallen strictly in line. Follow the the, the thought processing here, guys. What are they suggesting? What is the, the point that they are suggesting here? Power changes hearts and results in obedience. Well, what's the evidence? And, and let's look at the difference between claims and evidence. What does the evidence of biblical history tell us? Was there a display of power at the flood? Followed by the Tower of Babel. Because they love and trust God now, right? No, they don't love and trust God. Um, The Sodom and Gomorrah followed by more rebellion and hedonism. The ten plagues of Egypt walking through on dry ground followed by a golden calf. Mount Carmel followed by more rebellion and the crucifixion of Christ down the road. And so we read in Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Now, how does the Spirit work? In 
love. Spirit is the spirit of love and truth. You see, this is a spiritual war for our minds. We wage against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We have been lied to. We don't trust him. Can trust be restored by exercise of might and power? If somebody has lied to you, your spouse has cheated on you, you've believed the lie, can your spouse come to you with a shotgun and say, look, they've lied and you better believe me while they're pointing a shotgun at you? Will that restore trust? No, might and power will never restore trust. That's why, so when they understand the dynamics, it's not a surprise to me at all that there was, trust was not restored. And then the last paragraph, put on your seatbelts if you haven't read this. It says the Hebrew wording in Leviticus 9.24, that's the sacrifice, and 10.2, that's Nadab and Abihu, was the same. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the first case, the offering. In the other, the sinners. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation. At the cross, the fire from God, the wrath of God, consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. Thus all who put their faith in him never have to face that fire, that wrath, because a substitute did it for them. Those, however, like these priests who reject God's way for their own, will have to face the fire themselves. The same glory that was revealed in the cross will be the glory that at the end destroys sin. What a stark and unambiguous choice before us all. Is your heart warmed? (laughs) (laughs) Margaret jumped all over it. First thing, the leap of logic here. I, mean, I hope you question it. They, they make a connection. They're, they're alleging that the fire of God and his wrath are the same thing. They've connected them in an assumption that's just the way it is. God's fire and God's wrath are the same. They haven't provided any evidence for that. They just claim it to be true and act as if it is. Is it? No. What is... Um, what does the evidence of Scripture, the historic record, tell us first? How about the Gospels? What do the Gospels, the historic record in the Gospels, tell us about what Christ experienced at the cross? My God, my God. My, my God, yes. Do we have a record of, the, of those who were there? John, who was at the cross. Remember, he was there. He was the only of the apostles that stood there and watched what happened. Does he record fire coming down from heaven, consuming Christ? No. Where did they get this stuff? Did Christ say, my God, my God, why are you raining fire down from heaven and consuming me? No. There's a, there's a com- complete disconnect here. Yes. How come the tunics were not consumed? Oh, that's a, we're going to get to that question later. That's a, that's a good question. He's asking how, why, why Nadab and Abihu's tunics were not consumed. We'll get to that when we talk about the fire just briefly. First, we want to talk about this idea of did God rain fire down, number one, and is God's fire and wrath the same thing? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 118, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on to tell you six times that what their wickedness was doing, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Notice the wickedness is not specifically about bad behavior. The primary issue, he says six times in these few verses, is that they wouldn't retain the knowledge or hold the truth of God in their minds. They preferred lies to the truth about God. That's wickedness. And then he says three times what the wrath of God is. Because in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed, is a, is a Greek tense that means active present, happening here today. Not one day, Two thousand years from now, after the judgment, God's wrath will be revealed. No, today, God's wrath is being revealed. In verse 24, because they wouldn't hold the knowledge of God, because they didn't think it worthwhile to retain it, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, therefore God gave them up. Verse 28, therefore God gave them up. Now, as you keep reading through Romans, Paul then talks about a Savior who comes, a, a, a Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who comes and takes our position to remedy the sin problem. And in verse chapter 4, verse 25, Paul uses the exact same Greek 
describing what God did to Christ at the cross, as he did in verse 24, 26, and 28, when he talked about the sinner, God's wrath, God gave them up. And in verse chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, therefore, God gave up Christ at the cross. Now, most of your translations will say God delivered him over. Slightly if different English, English translation, but the words in Greek are the same. God gave him up. God let him go. God didn't intervene to stop what was happening. God didn't protect his son at the cross. But do you notice what the lesson is suggesting? I hope you really, really honed in on the meaning. If what the lesson says is true, who killed Christ at the cross? God. God becomes the cosmic executioner. God killed his son at the cross. If the lesson is true, then we have a version, a a, a characteristic of God that says, God kills. Death comes from God. Do you understand that this idea has infected Christian thinking? And it is taught as truth. The scriptures, of course, teach something completely different. If you go to the scriptures, the wages of sin is... That's Romans chapter 6. How about James chapter 1? Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. God said, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree... I will surely kill you. No, you will surely die. But what's happened is, Satan has come along, and he knows that our only remedy, our only chance of of survival, only chance of cure, is in a trust relation with God, and he's come along and taught this idea that the problem with sin is not sin. Sin is not the problem. The problem is God who must punish you for sin. God now is angry and he's wrathful and he must inflict upon you penalties and pain and torture and death. What kind of a God would he be? But we have his son who pleads to him in our behalf this type of distortion. Who was it that actually killed Christ at the cross? For one of the founders of our church, we, we read the following, Desire of Ages 761. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer by shedding the blood of the Son of God. He had uprooted himself from the simply the heavenly beings. So we have here this, the, the record of Scripture where unholy men being spawned on by by the devil, and this record from one of the founders of our church that Satan murdered Christ at the cross. We have this theology taught in Christianity that God, in order to be just, had to execute his wrath upon his son and kill his son at the cross. What what was the the, the memory verse? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who take and represent God in the character of the evil one. Desire of Ages 761, if you read it, will also tell you that Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. That every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Urged Satan. Sin has to be punished. Satan's view. God is a punisher of sin. And if you think through the meaning of what that means, it means this. Satan says, guys, look, there isn't anything wrong with sin. If God would just get a little grip, if he'd just get a little self-governance, if he'd get a little hold of his wrath and anger and temper, if he would just be patient, if he would just set us free to have freedom and leave us to ourselves in the corner of the universe where we want to live, well, we can live for eternity in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with a God who will kill you if you don't do what he wants. This is the conclusion we come to if we take the view that sin doesn't kill. Sin only offends God's attitude, his, his nature, and then God has to kill if he's not appeased. Listen to this amazing quote. Dennis Steele pointed it out to me last week. And we're talking still in the context of the Jewish sanctuary service. This is out of Prophets and Kings, page 685. From the day the Lord declared to the serpent in Eden, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, Satan has known that he can never hold absolute sway over the inhabitants of the world. When Adam and his sons began to offer the ceremonial sacrifices ordained by God as a type of the coming Redeemer, Satan discerned in those symbols a communion between earth and heaven. 
During the long centuries that have followed, it has been his constant effort to intercept this communion. So in this, in this sacrificial servant service, some communion is symbolically represented. Satan wants to intercept this. Untiringly, he has sought to misrepresent God and to misinterpret the rites pointing to the Savior. And get this, and with the great majority of the members of the human family, he has been successful. While God has desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to himself. So what's the lesson to teach? From God's love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? The the, the lesson is that God sent his son for the purpose of bringing us back to him. This is what it's saying here. While God had desired to teach men that from his own love comes the gift which reconciles them to himself, the arch enemy of mankind has endeavored to represent God as the one who delights in their destruction. Thus the sacrifice is an ordinance designed of heaven to reveal divine love have been perverted to serve the means whereby sinners have vainly hoped to propitiate with gifts and good works the wrath of an offended God. Did you hear it? The sacrificial system to teach us God's love has been perverted to teach us a system in which we propitiate God's wrath by the blood of his son. Write it down, Prophets and Kings 685. This is paganism. According to one of the founders of our church, this idea that God's wrath needs to be propitiated is a perversion of Satan. Question, what do you think? Did God kill his son in order to assuage or propitiate his wrath? Do you know this issue, this point right here, what we're on right at this moment, is what we have been, what we have been opposed by. The, 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 the people who have stood against us and put us at a di- arm's distance has been on this issue because they have vehemently stated that in order for God to be just, his wrath had to be propitiated and justice had to be met at the cross when God killed his son at the cross. And I gave you many of those quotes. I'm going to have a document coming out very soon, a sharing document that you can have that will actually give you point by point the documentation of, the, of these contrasting views. What do you mean by propitiated? Assuage, appease, mm-hmm. turn away. Not like satisfy? Satisfy. And some of you haven't been here, but within the last four months, I read to you a list of those quotes from several sources. They'll be coming out in a document very soon. I think this is the key issue. My personal belief is, is this is what happened. Man fell into sin. God immediately began intervening to prevent sin from killing man. He interceded right there in Eden. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He began to intercede in the hearts and minds of men to put a desire for something good, to draw us back to his kingdom. He began to intercede with the principalities and powers of darkness to hold back satanic forces. We have the four angels holding back the four winds. We see in, with Elisha the, the chariots of fire holding back evil forces. God intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness. He intercedes in our hearts to convict and draw. And he sent son, his son to intercede with the natural progression of what sin does to a being. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that he could change the outcome. The outcome without Christ was humanity was terminal. Humanity was going to die. He interceded with that progression, becoming sin who knew no sin, so that he could provide a different outcome. That he could remedy or cure the situation. That he could overcome where we could not overcome. He interceded with the course of sin itself. Satan has twisted this. And so what you find happening, you, you find Throughout the whole history of Scripture, you have these two antagonistic principles battling. You have God trying to reveal himself in love to his creatures as the redeemer, as the healer, as the one who's going to save and protect. You have Satan working to represent God as an angry, wrathful being who has to be appeased, who you can't trust, who has to be bought off by the blood, blood of animal sacrifices, blood of, blood of his son. We have Christ coming uh, 2,000 years ago, and on earth, he sets the record straight. He sh- if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He began to disabuse them of all the ritualistic, legalistic stuff that was, was enslaving them in a, in a system where God was oppressive and began to show them the freedoms that you have in Christ Jesus. 
He finished the work. He rose again. And the Bible tells us that there was a counterattack. Thessalonians, the man of sin, is going to arise. He's going to oppose everything that sets himself up. Uh, up. He's going to oppose himself against everything that is godly and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Which temple was that? Our hearts and minds. We have a prophecy of Daniel. The 2300 year prophecy. 470 years, Messiah is going to come to provide remedy, to finish the work, to, 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 to change the course of what sin would do to mankind. And then that 490 years is broken off of that 2300 years. But after Messiah comes, there's going to be a counterattack. A little horn's going to rise up. He's going to war against the saints. Until the NIV says judgment was pronounced in favor of the saints. The King James says until judgment was given to the saints. And, and the word there, the Hebrew actually means to impart. And w- what I see happening, because this is a battle for who you trust. It's a battle in your mind. Satan, the father of lies, which has power in your mind. Jesus said, you know the truth. The truth destroys lies that set you free. That after Christ came, that the lies and distortions started mounting up. The minds of man became darkened. Satan established himself in the, in the, in the spirit temple. And then 2,300 years, enough truth is recovered so that the sanctuary be cleansed. So judgment was given or imparted to the saints. We now have discernment. We have judgment. We can tell the difference between the true and the false. And the Reformation began, and the Reformation is progressing, and truth is unfolding, and we have a mission on earth today, and what I see it, the final piece to finish the Reformation and take the message to to the world is to get this pagan idea, this appeasement concept, this propitiation idea out of our theology and represent truthfully that Jesus Christ came to reveal God, to remedy sin, and God never needed to be appeased. Amen. Yes. It's interesting, the disciples before Christ revealed himself after the resurrection, they, they cowered in fear. After he revealed himself to them, the Holy Spirit was, was poured out on them. They, they not only didn't fear God, they didn't fear anything. I mean, they went out and they boldly preached and ultimately went to their deaths, totally free from fear. So if you want to see a before and after, just look at that point in time and see how they got it at that point. Beautifully said. And, and they weren't afraid because where was their focus at that point? Of, they, they recognized they had a mission to set others free. They wanted to help others. They wanted to free the minds and hearts of others. They weren't consi- concerned with, with me anymore, with self anymore. They were other, other-centered. And as we become other-centered, our fear for self goes away, doesn't it? Yeah. I think we have a mission. The church has been called to fulfill a purpose, to lighten the world for Christ's coming. If we want that to happen, we're going to have to do it. The apostles were not the leaders of their day. The church administration didn't support what the apostles were doing. And so I'm I'm encouraging us, each individual, to to go forward to share a message um, with your neighbors, with your friends, to draw them into Bible studies, to have conversations in your home, to... um, and to help that happen, our board has has, uh, has decided to try and make more materials that people can use in this conversation. I think I told you we made our DVD sets available for free for, for those who want to, to share those. I brought some today for, for anybody who wants to have a set to, to use to share with your neighbors or friends or have Bible studies. We've already had around the world over 100 sets shipped out around the world for people who are doing this in their communities. And this is just a starting point. This is a starting point. It's a way to build a conversation, to get a dialogue going. And I want to be very clear here. Some might leave here today. Some might hear this on a recording and think that what I'm doing is attacking the church. If anybody makes that allegation, you challenge that allegation. We are not attacking the church. Not at all. We are attacking a theological infection which has infected our church. When a doctor sees a patient who has an infection... And he points out the affection. He diagnoses, you've got pneumonia, you've got bacterial meningitis, you've got an infection. He doesn't attack the patient. When Christ came 2,000 years ago, when Christ came 2,000 years ago, he attacked the distortions in the thinking of men that obstruct them from seeing God. But when the woman at the well asked, he said, salvation is of the Jews, he didn't attack the church. He attacked the distortions that had infected the church that were blinding men. So if anybody challenges on that, we're not attacking the church. We're attacking distortions that infect the minds of men within the church. Do you see the difference? Just to clarify, that although Christ's death on the cross was not to provide a blood sacrifice to appease God, it was required as part of the plan of oh, salvation. Thank you. 
sometimes I'll present this, and when I say what it's not for, appeasement, propitiation, some will hear that and think, well, Jennings doesn't believe that Christ had to die. Not so. Not so. Thank you, Ben. In our, in our view, man could not be saved without Christ incarnation, perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection, all necessary for salvation. There was no other way for it to be accomplished. But the purpose was not to appease an angry, wrathful God. That was not its purpose. That's what I'm suggesting. Yes, way in the back. And also whether clarification is happening, that the goal is to bring, in my understanding, the goal is to bring people back to God's word and to be able to read it again and understand it. It's not speaking in place of, as you so often demonstrated, it's bringing them to read God's word and to be able to come to an understanding of what truly was intended versus espousing uh, uh, just own opinion. Uh, thank you very much. Absolutely. Yes, we want to go back to the evidence and see if what we're saying is supported by evidence. Uh, did, you, did you like that? <laughs> were you stunned by the quotation I read out of Prophets and Kings? I mean, it's stunning. It's been there for 160, 70 years. But w- what, what play does it get in our theology? I saw a hand. Yes, Russ. The death and blood of Christ was more than just for saving man. It was for bringing harmony back to heaven. I mean, Ellen White says that if, we, if we'll lose the, the idea of what salvation was about unless we in, in, uh, input the understanding of what the great controversy was all about. And, and let's use a Bible text to support what you're saying. I was going to use one of them that, uh, that from actually Ellen White, and that was part of the thing and when you made the comment that uh, you're not talking against the church. In all honesty, I think that the church had it right. I think Ellen White and her founders had it right. I think it's that we strayed from that concept. And in, in the book, uh, Desire of Ages, and it is finished, page 79, um, or not page 79, chapter 79, goes on to say, God gives us existence for a time. Talking about the, the second resurrection of the, uh, you know, the, the wicked when they're raised up. It says, God gives them an existence for a time. They develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choices. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him uh, place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy him. Not God will, will destroy him, but his glory and who he is. And that's the problem. And then right afterwards, it says in the next paragraph, at the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. Had Satan and his hosts been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to the heavenly beings that it was an inevitable result of sin. And we're going to explore the fire here in a minute if we have time. But did you hear the point there was that their condition destroyed them, not God. It was their unhealed condition. Their sinful hearts is what destroyed them. Sin results in death. It's a devi- Remember, our, our understanding in this class is that what God is love. When God began to create the universe, he built it, he constructed it in, uh, to run in harmony with his own nature or character. That's how it was built. So the laws, like the laws of gravity and all these laws of nature, as well as the moral laws, are all expressions of his nature and character. When you deviate from the laws, God doesn't have to use penalties to punish you. One example, and I've used it over again, I hate to keep using the same one, but is very briefly, is respiration. It's a law. He built us to run on the law of giving. We give our carbon dioxide to plants and plants give oxygen to us. If you break that law, put a plastic bag over your head, deviate from that design, the outcome is, is clear. We die. That's exactly what happens with sin. Sin is a deviation from God's plan, his design, and unless remedied, results in death. I wanted to give a Bible text to support what he said because he used Ellen White. But let's give a Bible text. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, are you going to read it for us? Go ahead. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you notice in Colossians 1, all things are reconciled to God at the cross through the shedding of Christ's blood. And, that's, and, the, and the scripture says, those things in heaven as well as the things on earth are reconciled through the blood of Christ. So we have these, these Bible texts that tell us that something more than just the salvation of man was involved in Christ's mission. I think that's, that's, that's important to, 
to share. Well, Christ himself said, I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all. All unto me. Not, yeah, not all men. So, quickly on the fire. The fire, because this, this, this lesson is alleging that fire burned Christ at the cross. It consumed him at the cross. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14 and 15 says, The sinner in Zion is terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Verse 15, he who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion, that's the one who spends eternity in the eternal burning fire. And when I present this to Christians, it really throws them because they've been taught their whole life that the wicked will burn either as long as they deserve or for all eternity in the burning fire. That's for the wicked, not for the righteous. Isaiah 33 says it's where the righteous live. And so you have to begin being an evidence-based thinker. Go back to Scripture and look. When, when God talked to Moses at the bush, the bush was burning, but it didn't get consumed. When God came down to Sinai, it describes it as a consuming fire, but the mountain didn't melt. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, the priest could not enter because the brightness of God's glory was too bright for it. Um, when in, in Hebrews chapter 12, 29, it says, Our God is a consuming fire. The lie that Satan has perpetrated upon everyone is the place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire. And that place is God's very presence. And the righteous are transformed by it as Moses, after spending time on the mountain, comes down. What's his face doing? What, does, is, does he have third degree burns? Is his whiskers burned? Think this through. He's got fire coming from his face, but he's not hurt by it. The children of Israel and Aaron, when they see the fire of Moses' face, what do they do? How do they respond? They actually cower, and it causes them suffering and pain. And it says um, their conscious guilt causes fear in the presence of divine light. Conscious guilt causes fear. So we have this examples where the bush doesn't burn, the temple doesn't burn, the mountain doesn't burn, Moses' face doesn't burn, yet the children of Israel are suffering in an agony. And then it tells in Thessalonians that the wicked will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And so now we have Nadab and Abihu. And if you read the text in uh, Leviticus chapter 10, it will tell you right after their fire comes out from the Lord and consume them, and they died before the Lord. A couple verses later, Moses instructs the cousins to go in and take them out. And it says, they drug them out still in their tunics. Still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower, you see, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was evaporated and gone. Fire came out from the Lord at Mount Carmel and consumed the sacrifice and all the stones and the water, and it was all gone, vaporized. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed these intelligent beings, and they were still in their tunics. Is this the same fire? Something different's happening. If I hit you with a flamethrower till you die, now if I hit you with a flamethrower for two seconds, will you be dead instantly? You'll be suffering, you'll be miserable, but you won't be dead yet. If I hit you with a flamethrower until you die, keep the, the flames on until you're dead, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? You won't be in your skin, Exactly. That's a good one. You won't be in your skin. These people were still in their clothes and still in their skin. But they were dead. What kind of fire was this? The lesson doesn't bring these points out. They want you to think it's some type of aggravated irritation on God's part. No, what I believe happened here is God simply revealed himself. He pulled back the veil. They got a glimpse of his true self. And in their conscious guilt, the truth. I mean, God is absolute truth and love. What does truth and love do in the mind of a being in selfishness and lies? And do you get a sense of this? Can I give an example, Russ? You need to say something right now. Well, Go ahead. In the pink box right below uh, Monday's lesson, it says, in one sense, if you think about it, fire is fire. The lesson actually takes a step to, in the opposite direction. That, well, must have been the same fire. Yeah. Fire is fire. Actually, the scripture tells you there's two fires. You look. Look at the evidence. Did the, the bush didn't burn? Moses' face didn't burn, but he's radiating it. Um, you got the same fire on the face of Stephen before he's stoned. His face isn't burning. Uh, Pentecost, yes, I love it. So the fire is the fire of the presence of God, and God is truth and love. And so when the Spirit fell at Pentecost, they saw tongues of fire 
but nothing burned down. That's exactly right, truth and love. Now, this fire that comes from God, as, as Ellen White says in one place, to sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. This fire that comes from God is to consume what? Sin. What is this, this little podium made out of? Wood. And these chairs you're sitting on made out of? Plastic. What is sin made out of? She says ideas. See, when we think of fire, we almost always think molecular, chemical, physical, structural things. So fires of combustion. But sin isn't made out of physical material. Sin is an attitude, an idea, a belief, a heart disposition. This is what sin is. And the fire to sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. And God is the God of love and the God of truth. And sin as its root has two elements. Lies, Satan is the father of lies, and truth consumes or destroys lies. And selfishness, and love destroys selfishness. And thus you see the spirit fall at Pentecost, the, the spirit of truth and love, and no one got injured because their hearts were prepared to receive truth and love. But let me give you an example. I have patients that sometimes are, um, have a history of being molested or abused by their parents, <clears throat> one or both of their parents. And in the therapy process, in the healing process, we start working through these issues. Inevitably, they will usually say something like this. I just wish my dad would admit what he did. I wish my mom would just, just wish they just admit it. And I will say to them, okay, let's take that at face value. Today, right now, if your mom, if your dad genuinely acknowledge and admits what they did, what will they today experience? Won't there be guilt? Self, self, uh, depreciation, shame, agony, fear, insecurity? Won't there be just an awful emotional ugliness in the heart as they wrestle through this? Isn't that true? If they truly admit it. But if they do here on this earth, understand, if they admit it, they're admitting it's still under the umbrella of God's grace. The Holy Spirit still works. God's agencies are still there. It may be an agonizing time for them, but God's agencies can bring healing and repentance and regeneration and a new heart still, yes? What will it be like for those, as read by Russ a minute ago, who have habituated so long their characters in rebellion against God that no amount of truth, no amount of love has any impact on them anymore? And then they come face to face at the great white throne judgment day where God unveils his presence. Will their denial and lies, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, I didn't do anything wrong. Will the denial and lies work in the face of unveiled truth and love? No, and this is the agony, this is the suffering. As they come face to face in full awareness of who they actually are in heart and mind in real time. Who are you? And as that sinks into their awareness, it's agonizing. People do not want to look in the mirror and see their own ugly selves. I will tell you, this is the greatest obstacle to getting people well in my office, is their level of a denial and their unwillingness to look at themselves. The Holy Spirit continually tries to point out to us our errors. That's because you're open to the movements of the Holy Spirit. You ask, like David, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. But people who haven't come to that experience with God, they don't pray that. They're not open to the movements of the Spirit. They resist the Spirit. They deny the Spirit. They don't want to see the truth. Come on, you've got to know people like this. They don't want to admit they've ever done anything wrong. They always blame somebody else. And so what will it be like on that day when there is no grace and they actually experience and see themselves for what they really are? But not only do they get that, they get the full force of what their conduct did to others. They get an appreciation and awareness of how they made their child feel and what they put their child through. What will that be like? And what will it be like as it happens before the entire universe watching them and they're completely exposed? You talk about agony and suffering. Now, is this an infliction? No, this is the inevitable consequence. It can't be avoided when your heart is like this and you're in the presence of ultimate truth. It's not an infliction. And thus they die. They're consumed. This is what happened to Nadab, Nadab and Abihu. They came face to face, boom, and it fried the circuits, boom. But their bodies weren't hurt. They died. Yes, Wendell. We, we quote that text about God being consuming fire 
That comes from Hebrews 12, the last verse of that, that chapter. If you read the last paragraph of that chapter, it's talking about things that will be consumed and things that won't. And that God's presence will consume those things which should be done away with and will not touch those things that survive. And we get, thank you so much, because we, we, we get that, don't we? And we read that last line, which is very short, the very last verse, verse of chapter 12, where we say, oh, God is consuming fire, it must be destroying everything. But if you read just the few verses before that, it tells you what he's consuming. And it's always sin, isn't it? Yeah. And so I actually see two fires in Scripture. The fire of God's truth and love, his presence, who he is, that you see in Daniel chapter 7, as the Ancient of Days took his throne, and rivers of fire came out before him, and millions stood in the fire. That's the fire of God's presence, truth, and love. But there is another fire described in Peter, where the elements melt in the fervent heat, and all things are made new. And that fire, the fire that melts and destroys and renews the whole earth, comes after the wicked are dead. When in Scripture did they ever burn an animal sacrifice alive? Never. Never. There will be a fire that consumes the bodies of the dead and all the stuff we've done to earth and the whole earth will melt in the fervent heat. And, the, and I believe the New Jerusalem rides over that, you know, like the ark rode over the waters and all the earth will be made new. But that's after everyone's already dead. Okay, Tuesday's lesson, wow, reminds us of the importance of praise and, and how praise is an important part of our worship. And I want you to spend five minutes today at least Spend five minutes today when you leave here and just go over the things you're thankful to God for and praise Him and thank Him. I want to spend some time doing that in class, but, uh, but there's some other points we need to get. But praise Him today. Thank Him for the things He's done. Number one on my list, praise Him for who He is. His nature is love. He's not like what Satan says. That's something to, be, to praise Him for. Thank you for who He is. Thank Him for Christ. Praise Him for His methods and principles and the way He runs His universe. Awesome. Many more things. Wednesday's lesson talks about worship, and it says in Wednesday's lesson, worship in the Bible is serious business. It is not a matter of personal taste, nor is it a matter of doing one's own thing or following one's own proclivities. Well, I guess we need to define what it means by personal taste. Because uh, to me, I wondered, um, when Handel wrote the Messiah, was he worshiping in his own personal taste? When Michelangelo carved his sculptures, was he worshiping in his own personal taste? Um, does God want us to bring our personalities to bear in worship? Does he want us to bring our personal taste into worship? Or does God want, and maybe we should talk about where personal taste crossed the line. Is there a line that can be crossed? Does God want us to worship in a scripted way that follows a rigid formula a, a set of rules and rituals that we are to follow to precisely and call that worship. Well, we can almost believe that if we look at the Old Testament and Leviticus and all the things he instructed them to do, unless we read Isaiah and Micah and, and Amos, where he chastised them for following all the rituals. Your, 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 your feast days, your, your burnt offerings, your Sabbath days, your convocations, your, your new moon festivals, my heart is sick of them. I hate them. And yet we find David out there in the fields with his flocks, with his harp, making songs in his own taste. And dancing before the Lord. And dancing before the Lord. Worshipping. Hmm. Which, was, which do you think God preferred? David's songs and dance or those strict rituals that were being done? Songs. To be sure we got him off the cross so we can keep the Sabbath rigidly. Yes. You want your child to come before you each morning and say, Daddy, good morning, I love you, and, and have a written script that they follow each morning, or do you want them to come over and express themselves out of, out of true love? While they still, though, follow the, the recommendations and the, the, the rules of the house to keep them safe. So, Well said. Well said. So the question that talks about true worship in the lesson, uses the term true worship. What is true worship? Have you ever heard... Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Could imitation be the greatest form of worship? When Jesus said in Matthew 25, 
Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of the Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did, he, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Would we consider this worship? Or is worship only something that happens in a sanctuary when we sing songs and read scripture? Would going out and helping victims of the tornado be worship? Would donating blood be worship? Would turning the other cheek be worship? Would giving your time to help your neighbor be worship? Giving your life for a friend or sharing the truth about God, would that be worship? Yeah. Do we need to adjust our ideas of what worship is? I'm going to suggest to you the greatest worship is when we live like Christ. And church is secondary. Rituals are secondary. In the third paragraph it says, However much we want to remember that God himself should be the focus of our worship, we do not worship God in a vacuum. We are not worshiping a distant, far-off, abstract being. We are worshiping the God who created and redeemed us and who interacts in human affairs. Has anyone ever felt like God was a distant, far-off, abstract being? Yeah, I've had people actually email me about that. God seems so distant and far-off and abstract. Any, any thoughts as to why? Why is he distant, far-off, and abstract? If God is the way that they presented him in Tuesday's lesson, I, I want him to be a distant, far-off, and abstract being. <laughs> So do you think maybe he's distant, far off, and abstract because we're starting from a starting point where we really, we, we're supposed to, be, we, know, we know he's real, but we really don't want actually in our hearts to be close to him because we're afraid of him. Yep. So we are doing something in our own hearts to put up walls, and that's exactly Satan's strategy. He puts ideas in our mind that causes us to fear him, and like Adam and Eve, we're running and hiding because we're afraid. Yes? We need to change worship to loveship. Worship the love ship. Oh, that's nice. Love ship. Yeah. Group hug? (laughs) (laughs) And then in Thursday's lesson to close out, it's got uh, three conclusions about the experience with Samuel when he said that that obeying the voice of the Lord is better than sacrifices to hearken than, than the fat of rams. And it gives three conclusions, and the conclusions it gives are that God would rather have our hearts than our offerings. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. He wants our hearts, but for what purpose? For the purpose of healing, regenerating, recreating, and then we get the fruits of the Spirit, and the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control, self-governance. He sets us free. He heals, restores, regenerates, sets us free. He wants to fix us. He wants to restore us to his original ideal. So yes, he wants our hearts. Two, obedience is more pleasing to him than our sacrifices. Absolutely true. I wish we had time to talk about what actual obedience is. We don't have time to talk about that today. But um, maybe different than what sometimes we're told. And then the last one, stubbornness, insisting on having our own way is idolatry because it's made gods of ourselves, our desires, and our opinions. Uh, Abraham and Moses, when they argued stubbornly with God about... Moses, when God was going to destroy Israel, Abraham over Sodom, were they being idolatrous? I just don't like, you know, global statements that apply all the time. I think it's the hard attitude. They were both jealous for God's reputation. And that's what Abraham said. Shouldn't the Lord of all the earth do what's right? You can't destroy these people. What would people say about you? Moses said, you just brought this, the whole world is watching. You just brought these people out of Israel. If you destroy, I mean, out of Egypt, if you destroy them now, what will the world say about you? What kind of a being will they think you are? They'll think you're harsh and cruel. You can't do it. And so they stubbornly resisted what they perceived would, would reflect badly on God. This is what refers to that as Abraham was praying when he was pleading for Sodom. Yes, Abraham was praying when he was pleading for God, and she says, and prayer with God is conversation is with a friend. Yes. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you have 
gone to such lengths to bring us a truth about you. Inspire us, enlighten us, empower us, open avenues. Lord, we want to see you real time, real flesh, real coming. And we know that this message has to go forward because so many of your children have been, have been uh, believing this other thing innocently. Empower us to, to share a message that will set hearts and minds free, that people can see the true nature of your awesome character of love and that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.